It is in three parts, the reading. Uh, we'll be reading from Genesis 42 first, uh, verses 1 to 5. So if you'd like to open up to Genesis 42, that'd be good. Okay, so uh, Genesis 42. When Jacob learned that there was, a grain, there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Uh, if you'd like to turn to chapter 43 now, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 5 as well. Now, the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, The man warned us solemnly, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down, because the man said to us, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. And now for the last part, we'll be reading all of chapter 44. So, now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, go after those men at once. And when you catch up with them, say to them, why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master's drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said to him, why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die, and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. Very well then, he said, let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this, they tore their clothes. They, then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what is this you have done? Don't you know that a, that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied, what can we say? 
How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now, my Lord's slaves, we ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. But Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. Then Judah went up to him and said, pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, we have an aged father and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead and he is the only one of his mother's sons left and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. Then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me. And I said, he has surely been torn to pieces and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my fa father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring this gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return, to, return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would become of my father. Wonderful. Thanks, uh, Stefan. That's great. Good evening. Uh, my name is Simeon, and I'm a trainee here at Above Bar, um, working with the young people, and I'm going to be leading us uh, through the next few chapters of Joseph's story this evening. It would be great if uh, you have your Bibles open, um, Genesis 42. Uh, it would be really helpful for following along the story. There are some outside. We need to grab one uh, still. Um, as we get ready, why don't we pray uh, and ask God to help us? Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your words. Thank you that you speak to us. Please give us receptive hearts to hear what you have to say. Challenge us and change us, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Great. Well, over the summer, we have been following the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. One chapter a week over the last four weeks. Except this evening, we have three chapters to get through. 
Thanks, John. Appreciate that. There's a lot to cover. But also, you might think there's not much to cover. Because the story involves lots of going backwards and forwards. We could be tempted to skip over some of it, to kind of condense it down, to, to merge the two trips to Egypt. And if you've seen Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, that's exactly what Tim Rice does there. But we can't afford to do likewise, because these chapters are rich. There's so much to see. They show us a God who changes hearts, transforming Joseph and his brothers. We're going to see how the brothers' guilt is revealed, how they receive grace instead of punishment, and how a saving substitute is offered. So, we kick off in chapter 42, in the middle of a famine. Now, this was the famine that we heard about last week in Pharaoh's dream. It's the famine that blighted every country in the area, and it's the famine that, thanks to Joseph, only Egypt was prepared to deal with. And now the camera has panned back to Joseph's family. We've not seen them for a few weeks. And Joseph's 11 brothers are sat round an empty table with their father, Jacob. They're hungry. And then, in typical dad fashion, when there's a problem, a job to do, and no one's doing it, Jacob turns to his sons and says, why do you just keep looking at each other? And so, in verse 3, he sends 10 of his sons off to Egypt to buy some grain. Yes, that's right, 10. One of his sons, Benjamin, is to stay. Why? Well, once upon a time, Joseph was Jacob's favourite son. Now, I gather dads aren't exactly meant to have favourite sons, but eh, they probably do, and at least Jacob was pretty open about it. But Jacob now believes Joseph to be dead. Of course, we know he's alive because we've seen that he's been sold into slavery and he's in Egypt. But his father doesn't know that. So, being the good dad he is, Jacob has a new favourite son, Benjamin, Joseph's only full brother. And what with Benjamin being the favourite, Jacob isn't going to risk sending him away. So his 10 sons make their way to Egypt to buy some grain. And in verse 6, we read how they arrive. They find the governor responsible for selling all the foods, and they bow down before him. Except this governor is their long-lost brother, Joseph. Now, if you've been here over the summer, alarm bells should be ringing in your head right now. The dream has been fulfilled. Look at verse 9, and you'll see that Joseph spots it too. God's plan is unfolding just as he said it would. Joseph had a dream way back in chapter 37 of his brothers bowing down before him, the man with a great bounty of corn. That dream has been fulfilled. But the brothers don't even recognize him. 
I mean, to cut them some slack, he was 17 when they sold him into slavery, and 20 years has passed since then. He's been shaved, he's been given a new name, he's now in a high position, he's got these royal robes and a gold uh, chain. And later in verse 23, we also see he's got an interpreter uh, to speak with the brothers. So with all this in mind, maybe it's only fair that they don't recognize him. But as these 10 travelers from a foreign land bow down before Joseph, Joseph recognizes them. In that moment, he surely remembers what they did to him. How they threw him in a well before selling him off to some Ishmaelites for 20 silver coins. That was his last memory of them. Let's just try and get our heads round what that must be like. How on earth would you react to seeing your brothers again? If Joseph had locked them up and thrown away the key, we'd surely think, yeah, pretty reasonable. If he'd sold them into slavery, we'd reply, well, only fair. And even if he had them killed, how outraged would we really be? They deserve punishment. And Joseph is now in a position where he's able to give that punishment. Except he doesn't. Here we see for the first time, but certainly not the last, grace enacted. Joseph doesn't seek revenge. Joseph doesn't give the brothers what they deserve. He spares their lives. He doesn't seek revenge. This is grace in action. Now, this idea that Joseph is being gracious might not be immediately clear to us because I'm not going to lie, Joseph is pretty weird in this passage. He does all sorts of weird things. I mean, for starters, He's accusing his brothers of being spies. Now, he obviously knows this isn't true, but he persists in the accusation. As they defend themselves, they end up mentioning uh, Jacob, their father, and Benjamin, their brother. Now, Joseph wants to be reunited with his brother, Benjamin, so he concocts a plan that will both bring Benjamin to him, but also will test his brothers. Take a look at verse 16. Joseph says, Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison. He claims this will allow him to know whether they are lying about their identity. But after a three-day stay in custody, we then hear Joseph say in verse 18, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back to your starving households. Hang on a minute. The plan has changed. A moment ago, only one brother will be allowed to go, but now only one brother is being forced to stay. Why why the change? Well, Joseph credits this to his fear of God. His actions have changed because he is submitting to who God is. And this new plan is a gracious one. Joseph only keeps one prisoner. This is grace enacted. 
See, more men can carry more food. And there are many hungry mouths back home to feed. You can see the size of Joseph's family in chapter 46, if you want to have a look. Each of the brothers has children, and some of them have grandchildren. Joseph is ensuring that his family, the family that has betrayed him, are fed, even though they don't deserve it. In keeping only one brother prisoner, the best-named brother, Simeon, we see grace enacted. It's at this point in the story that we also begin to see something going on in the hearts of the brothers. We're going to see their guilt revealed. Various events in the story are going to highlight the fact that they are guilty men. As the brothers are getting ready uh, to go and to, to leave for the land of Canaan, they say to one another in verse 21, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Wait a minute. Their first thought when seeing Simeon imprisoned is that they're being punished by God because they sold Joseph into slavery. Remember, they don't recognize Joseph. Seeing him hasn't reminded them of what they've done. Instead, their actions are clearly something that has been resting on their conscience for the last 20 years. They're mournful for what they've done, and they've been reminded of it by Simeon's imprisonment. The truth has been revealed to them. They're guilty. Guilty because of their past actions, because of selling Joseph into slavery. But before the brothers leave, Joseph does something rather odd. He takes the money his brothers have paid him for the food, and he puts it back in their sacks. Now, this doesn't exactly help the brothers' guilty consciences. They find some of the money in one sack on the way home and exclaim in verse 28, what is this that God has done to us? And we're told in verse 35, when they get back home, that they're frightened. The deep sense of guilt for what they've done to Joseph is now shaping their whole view of the world. They're convinced that the returned silver is some kind of plot by God to punish them. They're worried they're going to get accused for maybe not paying for the food, for maybe paying for the food and then stealing the money back. Or worst of all, maybe they're going to get accused of selling Simeon for the cash. The returned silver is revealing their guilt. But before they can consider this any further, they've got a problem. They need to rescue Simeon. And that's going to involve taking Benjamin. Now, understandably, Jacob's not very keen on that. Remember, Benjamin is his favorite son. He's already lost Joseph. Then he's lost Simeon, and now he's expected to lose Benjamin? No chance. 
Not even with Reuben's assurance that he would definitely get Benjamin back and that if he didn't, he could kill Reuben's two children or two of Reuben's children. No. What does he say in verse 38? My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. End of story. Well, it would have been if they weren't in the middle of a seven-year-long famine. Time passes until one day, Joseph's ten brothers are sat round an empty table with Jacob, their father. They're hungry. And so Jacob comes up with a nifty idea. Go back to Egypt, buy some grain. Anyone spot the problem in that plan? Well, Judah's quick to point it out. They can't go back. Not without Benjamin. Like his brother Reuben before him, Judah this time gives assurances to his father that Benjamin will return. And that if he doesn't, he will personally take the blame. They can't delay any longer. They need food. It's the only way their family will survive. And so Jacob says in verse 11, if it must be. So the brothers, they get ready. They take their gifts and money to return that was kind of awkwardly put back in their sacks, money to buy more grain. And of course, Benjamin. Once again, the brothers make their way to Egypt. And once again, they encounter Joseph. But this time, the steward says to take the brothers to his house. Joseph says to take the brothers to the house and prepare an extravagant banquet. Joseph will join them later. And here again, we see the brothers' guilt. Rather than be thankful for this special treatment, the, uh, the, the, the pleasure of a great banquet, they're terrified because they think it's a trap. They say in verse 18, we were brought here because of the silver that was put back in our sacks the first time. He wants to overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. But they didn't even steal the silver. They'd be innocent against that charge. Instead, their fear is still rooted in that past guilt. What are they worried this mysterious governor is going to do to them? That he'll attack them, overpower them, and seize them as slaves? Ringing any bells? Is that not exactly what they did to Joseph all those years ago? They're anticipating just deserts. Their fearful reaction to Joseph's offer of an extravagant banquet once again reveals their guilt for their past actions. So, they employ a tactic that I put to good use myself when at school, and I hadn't done the homework. Come clean before you've had a chance to be accused. Much more likely to get away with it that way than waiting to be called out. So before they've had a chance to be accused, the brothers say to the steward, just so you know, we found the silver in our sacks. You can have it back. 
much more likely to get away with it than waiting to be called out. But the response they receive is surprising. They're so wrapped up in their fear and guilt, they fail to see another act of grace. Joseph has covered the cost of the grain. Look in verse 23. Joseph's steward says, I received your silver. How can that be? How can it be that the brother's silver was both in their sacks and also received by Joseph's steward? It seems the return of the silver wasn't a trick or a trap, but an act of grace by Joseph to his family. He's not only ensured they have enough to eat, he's also secretly covered the cost himself. Joseph is acting generously and graciously towards the family who have rejected him. Now, when uh, Joseph returns home, the brothers present him with the gifts that they've brought and they, they bow down before him once again. And Joseph, upon seeing his brother Benjamin, is moved to tears. How long has he waited for this day? Serve the food, he declares. And as the food is served, we see yet another sign of grace in action. Joseph has provided a banquet. The brothers feast and drink freely. They have all they could want. But strikingly, there at the end of the table, little Benjamin, he has five times as much as everyone else. Now, I know in my family, such a state of affairs would have caused outrage amongst uh, us elder siblings. But here, it is a sign of Joseph's immense affection for his brother Benjamin. And it acts to highlight the extent of his gracious generosity that Joseph is offering to his brothers. Now, after the feast, it's time for the brothers to depart. And again, Joseph provides them with as much food as they can carry. And again, he covers the cost for that grain. But remember how I said that Joseph does some pretty weird stuff in these chapters? Well, here he goes again. Take a look at chapter 44, verse 2. He also hides a silver cup in Benjamin's bag. I mean, this isn't an act of generosity, but a ploy. The brothers will set off unaware of the silver cup, and Joseph will send his steward to catch them and accuse them of stealing it. So that's what happens. The brothers leave. The steward catches them and says in verse 4, Why have you repaid good with evil? Now the brothers, they quickly jump on the defensive. If any of your servants are found to have it, he will die. And the rest of us will become the Lord's slaves. Now I've got to be honest with you, that's a pretty poor opening negotiating position. If someone has the cup, kill him. And you can take the rest of us innocent ones to be slaves. Slightly melodramatic, you might say. And I think the steward maybe agrees because he basically doesn't acknowledge what they've said. Instead, he replies in verse 10, the one who is found to have it will become a slave and the rest are free to go. So, one by one, the sacks are opened, starting with the eldest and going to the youngest. You kind of feel the tension rising until, bam, 
There's the cup in Benjamin's bag. The brothers' minds are racing. How has this happened? What does this mean for Benjamin? Is he going to be taken from them? How can they return to his father without him? They tear their clothes in anguish and grief in verse 13. Why? Well, because to return without Benjamin would surely mean their father is going to die. What are they going to do? Well, despite being free to go, they return to Egypt with Benjamin and the steward. And so once again, they find themselves face to face with Joseph and they bow down before him. But this is worse than before. We're told in verse 14, they threw themselves down to the ground. The intensity to which they kind of prostrate themselves shows their complete and utter helplessness. They are beyond exoneration. Judah speaks up for them and says in verse 16, take note of these words, what can we say to my Lord? What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. Judah sees the whole group as guilty. The silver cup has revealed their guilt. They are worthy only to be slaves. But why? Sure, Benjamin is guilty. Remember, Judah doesn't know that it's planted. But why the rest? Why are they now to be Joseph's slaves? Why, why are they guilty? Why can Judah not find the words to prove their innocence? Because he knows they're not. Once again, we see the events of this story reveal the past guilt of the brothers. They're guilty because of what they did to Joseph, and they believe they're receiving their punishments. But Joseph doesn't want their enslavement, and he, and he only wants Benjamin. And so in verse 17, he says, the rest of you, go back to your father in peace. In all the backwards and forwards of this story, we see something important going on between Joseph and his brothers. We see grace enacted by Joseph, and we see the past guilt of the brothers revealed. In these chapters, we've seen how events have brought the brothers' past decision back into their minds. But they're not just remembering what they've done. They're feeling genuine and extreme remorse for their actions. I mean, back in chapter 37, the brothers happily sold off Joseph because, well, what do we get if we just kill him? I mean, there's some gentle resistance from Reuben, but other than that, it didn't seem to trouble them. But now it does. The truth has been revealed to them. Their guilt has been revealed to them. Their hearts have been changed. The brothers are guilty and they know it. But short of receiving the condemnation they deserve, they have received grace upon grace. Sure, Joseph has done some weird stuff, but they haven't faced revenge. They haven't all been kept prisoner. Instead, they've been given grain and an extravagant banquet. No charge. 
why does this story matter? Why have I spent the last however many minutes telling it to you on a Sunday evening? Because it's our story too. Like the brothers, we have all sinned in our past. Like the brothers, we are all guilty. Now, I doubt any of us have rejected our brothers, throwing them into a pit and selling them into slavery. But we have each rejected God. Joseph's brothers were insulted by the dreams in chapter 37. The idea that they would bow down to Joseph insulted them. Instead, they chose only to care about themselves and to line their own pockets. And likewise, we are insulted by the idea that we should live our lives in submission to God's. And instead, we care more about ourselves, choosing to live the lives the way we want to do. And in that regard, we're guilty. But the Bible's transformative message of hope is also found in this story. When the Holy Spirit starts working in someone, their guilt is revealed to them. Their eyes are opened and they see the truth. And like the brothers, this can make us fearful. Are we to receive the punishment that is due to us when we come before God? Well, Joseph's actions give us an idea of the reaction we can expect from God. A reaction of extravagant grace. Just thinking back to those words we sung earlier from Amazing Grace. How they resonate here. But there's a question still hanging. How can God offer us extravagant grace if in fact we are guilty and deserve punishment? Doesn't this make a mockery of the idea that God is just? If there's a punishment to be paid, who's paying it? Well, you might have noticed we haven't quite reached the end of the chapter. The rest is all one speech from Judah. It's an appeal to Joseph to try and see Benjamin rescued. And it provides us with a wonderful taste, a wonderful little glimpse of the answer to these questions. Much of the speech acts as a summary of the chapters before, so we won't go through it uh, all. But at the end, in verse 33, we see Judah plead with Joseph. What does he say? Now then, please let your servant, let me remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. Here we see a substitute offered Judah in place of Benjamin. Three things to spot here. Well, first, this is an act of self-sacrifice. Do you remember how Reuben first tried to persuade Jacob to let them return to Egypt? It was by sacrificing two of his unwilling sons, and that didn't wash, did it? But then Judah offered himself. He would take the punishment if Benjamin didn't return. He offers himself in place of Benjamin. Self-sacrifice. Secondly, it's self-sacrifice to save the guilty. Now, if you're more familiar with the musical adaptation, you may remember a rather truncated version of Judah's appeal. 
containing these words. I won't sing it, I'll spay that. Oh no, not he. How you can accuse him is a mystery. Save him, take me. Benjamin is straighter than the tall palm tree. It's a great song. Except it's wrong. Judah doesn't know that Benjamin is straight. It's not a mystery how uh, Benjamin could be accused. As far as Judah's concerned, Benjamin's stolen the cup. Judah isn't committing an act of self-sacrifice for someone who's been wrongly imprisoned. Oh no, he is committing an act of self-sacrifice despite the fact that Benjamin appears to be guilty. Thirdly, a question. Why does Judah do this? Well, in verse 34, I think we see the answer. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No. Do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Judah does this because he loves his father. Judah offers himself as a substitute. A substitute that is self-sacrificial. A substitute that saves the guilty. And a substitute that shows love to the father. How can God offer us extravagant grace if in fact we deserve punishment? Well, we need someone like Judah. And the message of the Bible is this. There is such a man. In fact, a man descended from this very same Judah, but also a man greater than Judah, a man who has no guilt and who takes the place of those who are truly guilty, not just those who appear to be guilty. A man whose act of self-sacrifice shows love and obedience to his father. Who is this man? Of course. He's our gracious Lord Jesus, our substitute. If we trust him, if we take, if we trust him, he will take the punishment of our guilt. Rather than receiving the punishment we deserve, we receive grace upon grace. When we, like the brothers in verse 16, ask, what can we say? How can we prove our innocence? The answer is, we can't, except by calling on the name of our gracious Lord Jesus, our substitute. This is a story of how hearts are changed and forgiveness is offered. Guilt has been revealed but grace has been enacted. For a substitute has in fact been made.